105. Reading from verse 16, the NIV says it like this. He who is God called down a famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies of food. He sent a man before them, Joseph, sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shackles, his neck was put into irons till what he foretold came to pass till the word of the Lord proved him true. Now I'm going to read, I like very much the Passion. I'm going to read that same thing in the Passion. So God decreed a famine upon Canaan land, cutting off their supply of food. He, but he had already sent a man ahead of the people to Egypt. It was Joseph who was sold as a slave. His feet was bruised by strong shackles and his soul was held by iron. God's promise to Joseph purged his character. Purged his character until it was time for his dreams to come true. So when you get a prophetic word or God makes known his plans to your life, he will purge work do whatever he needs to do to get you ready for what he has prepared for you. We have moments in our life that can and do change everything. If we look back in our lives, we wish we could have changed our response, our behavior, what we did before. We regret some of the moments we lived through. We wish to have done a little different. The same way when we face moments now, we can still make better decisions. And the three most vital things you need, I teach my children, in making good decisions is as much information as possible. You just can't have too much information. A lot of people make decisions on a leanness of information. Didn't have enough information. Only heard one side of the story. You need to get as much information. In gathering information, make sure you get it all the sides and exhaust all your resources. And also repeat, make people repeat when they tell you something. Now let me understand, did you say that if I buy this car, then I get this? Make them say it a few times because the story keeps changing. The second thing to make good decisions with is never emotionally. Our emotions always mess up our decision making every time without fail. If you buy groceries before lunch, you'll buy more than you would have after lunch. Fact. Men will buy a car they didn't go to the dealership to buy just because when they saw all these vehicles and tried different vehicles, the emotions, the excitement, the smells, all those things messed them up. And if you are upset, angry, in reaction to something that you shouldn't have been, you will also make a bad decision. When you're emotional, you regret it tomorrow. The third thing to make a good decision with is to wait until as long as possible before you render a decision. The reason is because so many things change while the process of making the decision happens. Also, for some reason, in the way God has designed us, we always see things different tomorrow morning. Always. When people are suicidal or negative, I always tell them, can you put it on hold till tomorrow? Just don't say, do anything tomorrow and they always behave different tomorrow. They all see things differently tomorrow. So when it comes to decision making, if you feel you can't wait till tomorrow, you're in trouble. You must be able to wait till tomorrow.
to make a decision. And you'll make a good one that you won't have to try and undo or regret. Now, in Joseph's life, he was born as you and I were for a specific purpose and a plan. And as a young teenager, he had a dream, two dreams in fact, both of which were very similar. One was indicating that his family would bow down to him, his brothers, and then his, his own mom and dad. He didn't know what they meant because he was way too young still. His dad immediately knew the moment he told the dream. His dad said, are we going to bow down to you? Oh, you know, he knew right away what the moon and the, and the sun bowing down, what it meant. He understood the meaning of it because the more senior you are, the more you have ability to interpret dreams. Now, which reminds me, I've just finished a book which I have with me. It will be available tomorrow here uh, on interpreting dreams. I just did a, spent the whole year writing a book on how to interpret dreams. So be a, you can have a, only a few here. Well, 20 tomorrow. You can get your book tomorrow. Okay, now, where was I? So with Joseph, he, God had a specific plan. He was a, very much a key in his life. And he had just one moment that would change life forever. He had to meet the Pharaoh and touch Pharaoh's heart in, a, in one small window. What happened was he was in jail and a sequence of events had brought him to a place where the wine taster told the Pharaoh when he had his dream, I know, do know someone that can interpret dreams. You're not satisfied with your own interpreters. I know one guy, you want to try him? Yeah, where is he? He's, I met him in jail. Okay, well, let him come. And so they dress him up and they bring him in front of the Pharaoh and the gift made room for him. You have a gift that opens doors, but doesn't settle issues for you. Gifts may help you, but not establish you. What really touched Pharaoh's heart wasn't his gift, was his character. When he interprets the dreams, two dreams the Pharaoh had, he then suggests to the Pharaoh, now Pharaoh, find someone in your nation that you can trust was the most perfect time to get out of jail. You could have suggested, look, I've got a plan. If you give me the opportunity, I can help save this country. But he didn't promote himself. He'd rather go back to jail, but save the nation, which wasn't even his nation. For him to have that attitude, it took 13 years of being a slave and two years of being in jail. I don't know what it takes each of us in our lives to get us ready to have that right spirit and attitude for that moment that changes everything. That moment that changed everything was so important for Pharaoh because even Joseph says in Genesis, I have become a father to Pharaoh. He'd become the commander, as it were, indirectly of the entire nation from being a slave carried off as a boy who didn't want to. He did not want that. There are things that happen in our lives we don't want, that we are subject to. Life deals us some things that we didn't. Now, we do make decisions that we are consequential, have to deal with, but there are things that we have no control over. It just happened to us, and it's part of the flow. He didn't choose to be a slave. He didn't do anything bad to become a slave. He just annoyed his brothers. He was, he was very um, favored, and his brothers hated him because he was so favored. His dad liked him. His dad, dad favored him because they waited so long for him, and the woman he loved, I mean, that wasn't a journey. It's amazing how that to get that favor, all this 
all those sequences, how God set up every small detail, because Jacob fell in love with Rachel and worked seven, agreed to work seven years. She was that valuable to him that he was willing to work seven years to marry her, only to wake up next to the elder sister. Can you imagine the horror of waking up next to someone not as beautiful as Rachel? In fact, she had, the Bible said, weak eyes, which means she was cross-eyed. Imagine waking up to this Leah. <laughs> On your wedding, I mean, OMG. I mean, really, it's like, who? What? What are you doing here? You married me last night. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. We husband and wife. Yeah. Can you imagine the, uh, how he felt? He ran to go find Rachel, and she had to get therapy. She felt so rejected. <clears throat> he, he marries Rachel after seven days and works for her for seven years. And, and, and so Leah gets pregnant. Leah's servant gets pregnant. Rachel's servant gets But Rachel struggles. And she's so depressed and frustrated. Please help me. He says, I'm not in the place of God. I can't do more than I'm doing. Says, but I want a baby. They're all making fun of me. And, and so finally, because of the stress, just because he got born, his dad favored him. He was the blue-eyed boy. He did nothing. It was a sequence of events that got him there. Things happen in your lives and that just a situation set up for it. And God has a much bigger plan because God needed him to be favored so his brothers would not like him. They'd be frustrated with him. And that one, the youngest one who would not be frustrated, would not want to kill him. So the whole thing was very carefully, delicately put in place so he would be sold as a slave. Carried off to a foreign country and he became a slave. Now, in his character, he was upright, so he fought to be a good slave. You can be a slave and feel so sorry for yourself and whine and complain and moan, or you can make the best of it. Depends who you are, what's inside of you. He was the best slave ever, and of course, because of that, his, uh, his boss left him a whole month alone with his wife and, and his whole household, and the boss's wife liked, us, liked him so much. And by, while I'm on that topic, the Bible says that she kept his garment and he fled, and then she accused him falsely, so he got to jail. He didn't, this little petite Egyptian didn't rip his clothes off. He was losing control. Because there's no scripture to tell you that you can overcome sexual immorality. You've got to run like hell. 1 Corinthians 6 says, flee. Flee means to run. Really run. Get out of there in a hurry. You can't play with it. We live in a time in, in the history of this country where there's so much exposure to sexual stuff all the time. Even in the most innocent radio and TV stations, they're just innocent, constant. They're constant referred to things I can't even walk in the airport out here in profanity and vulgar things all the time. It's getting worse and worse. Darkness is increasing. So we have to, we have to for our own health, we regulate our natural diets. We must regulate a spiritual diet and watch what's getting inside of you. Make sure you keep yourself away from them as much of the darkness you, as you can. Get away from it. You can't overcome it. I know where to stop. No, you don't. You must run. Get out of there. And got him in jail. And he tried to promote himself with the wine taste and the baker. And it wasn't God, wasn't happy with him yet. He hadn't got to the place where he was completely resigned to trusting God and being content in all things. Because now he told Pharaoh, now find someone. He was quite willing to go back to jail. And because of that, the Pharaoh turns to his leaders and says, can we find in all of Egypt a man with a heart like this? It was his heart that won Pharaoh. 
So that was a most momentous moment to change everything because God's plan was to save the people here at Bethel. To get sinners and people that are all messed up, born again, we needed a Savior, someone that would pay for all of our sins. To have a Savior, we couldn't just have him evolve from somewhere. He had to come from a nation that would have historically established a testimony for the whole world to see. To have a nation that would be decreed, declared, recognized as God's people, we had to birth it. We couldn't just evolve or try to group it from different tribes. So God took the seed from the promised land and impregnates the womb of Egypt. And this baby grows after 400 years to 600,000 people under immense pressure. They couldn't interact with Egyptians. They were rejected. They were pushed. They were be abused, and they became so united because all they had was each other, and they would call upon God. And they, they called and called, and there were one people under God until there were 600,000 Jews that belonged completely to God, and now the baby is ready to be born. Now Israel was about to come, and the entire nation shook with the first delivery pain, which was called a, a plague. The whole nation rippled through with the first plague. It wasn't quite as bad as the second one, and and as they increased, the pains got worse until the, right before the baby's about to be born, like a showing of blood when a baby's about to be born, on the doorpost, the blood was to be seen. And then the water broke right through the sea. And the baby came out the other side. Now the baby needed nurturing, as every baby needs mother contact. God himself kept that child in the desert, away from the Syrians, away from Egyptians, just him and them and the Ten Commandments and just them going around the constant desert, building relationship until they could crawl, walk, become stronger, and go in and possess the land. And every part of possessing the land was one big fight to make them stronger and dependent in their complete dependency and relationship with God. History unfolds, and they become very powerful in the David, rich under Solomon, and they become like any teenager, rebellious and, and full of themselves, and they be carried away with the Babylonians and all kinds, one war after another, and history unfolds for thousands of years until finally in the most obscure time, looking for a Savior, looking, praying, waiting for some deliverer, the true Savior comes camouflaged because the, the salvation or the deliverance he comes to bring has nothing to do with getting them free from Romans and becoming another David, but actually an eternal salvation, a supernatural, which was the original plan from the beginning. He came to his own people that they might receive him, and so much so giving them another extra chance that they had John the Baptist, especially born, never went to the movies, didn't have a girlfriend, had a miserable life in the natural, dedicated eating locusts and wild honey, yay. And all his life, all he did was prepare this way for Jesus. No miracles, just constant preaching and fasting and to call into repentance to awaken the Israel, to become mindful of God. So when the Savior come, they'd be recognizing this wonderful message, this wonderful salvation. And so to have this all happen, we needed to get the Israelites into that Egypt place. To have that, we had to send Joseph ahead of them. Joseph was born just for that. When he was born as a young teenager with a special cloak that his dad had made for him, he had no idea. As do we in our lives have no idea, understand so many things. We try to make sense of these things. But there are moments that God is building, preparing us for that will impact and change lives forever. Kim, to, to tell you the honest truth, that you're the moment that you were born for is still coming. All the years of practice as a lawyer, and that's what lawyers do. They practice like doctors. They practice until they get it right and then they die. <laughs> <laughs> 
But to be a voice, to be that person is a journey and you grow and you grow into it until you're that person that God, that moment that will change and have an impact on thousands of lives, a ripple effect. You just don't always see the effect of your life, but God prepares you because he wants you to take control. And Joseph took control by having the right attitude, always the right spirit. He could have gotten angry. We so often feel sorry for ourselves and begin to whine and complain. We have such a natural tendency to want to complain and feel dissatisfied about something. Paul said he learned to be content in all things. It didn't come naturally. He had to learn it day in and day out. He had to make up his mind, I'm going to be full of joy in the Lord. And he found that his happiness didn't come from his circumstances. His happiness came from the living God because circumstance kept changing and nothing would satisfy him but the things of God. And in your own journey, in making good decisions, instead of whining, complaining, and being frustrated, look at the opportunity. You've often wondered, why doesn't God just intervene? Why doesn't God just, why didn't God just stop me? I could have left five minutes earlier and missed this why didn't God just prevent me from marrying this idiot? I've asked God to show me to confirm these purpose. So many times in your lives, you wonder, why didn't God just do something? Jesus said to Peter in Luke 22, he said, the devil has asked to sift you. So he's fully aware of the interaction of the devil with the almighty God. And he's, the devil is now wanting to sift the disciples including Peter, who's so weak and up and flippy floppy, up and down. So he said, I prayed for you, Peter. I pray that your faith would not fail. What do you, why would you pray that? Because when the devil comes to attack you, he's not after your car, your house, your job, your money, your health. What he's really after is your faith. So I prayed your faith would not fail because he's going to come at you. Now, what are you saying? Because I'm willing to go to prison for you. No, and when you come back, I want you to strengthen the brethren because you're going to deny me three times. No way. Are you telling me Jesus couldn't prevent Peter from denying the Lord? I mean, there are things in your life. Why didn't God just stop me? Why didn't God just prevent it? You couldn't even, yes, he could have. I mean, really, if I was Peter and the Lord told me I'm going to deny him tonight, I'm in that bathroom with masking tape in my mouth. I'm waiting for that sun to shine. Ain't happening, baby. I'm waiting. <laughs> Not coming out of me. But Peter, is that, that brain damage that he went straight into it, being warned. He said, I'm willing to die for you. But God has no stress with your weaknesses. It's your wickedness he hates. Peter was weak. He denied the Lord three times. Judas was wicked, betrayed the Lord once. He made it clear in his heart. He didn't, wasn't a moment of weakness. He hadn't a good intention. He intended on betraying Jesus. Peter didn't intend on doing it. He kept falling, kept stumbling. Now what you don't know, and that will help you if you listen to me carefully, when you stumble and fall and make mistake in your weakness, the devil capitalizes on it by accusing you because that's his job. He's an accuser. And he'll tell you how bad you are. He'll remind you, well, you know what you did. And he'll put such shame and guilt on you to render you impotent, to stop you moving forward or have such deep regrets that you have no more, no more confidence of what God has planned for you. And so he brings us to being shamed. And if you don't know what the word of God says, and if you don't know there's no condemnation of those in Christ Jesus, if you don't know that he forgives when you confess, if you don't understand all the principles of God's word and his promises, the devil's going to beat you up every time you falter. And that's going to be plenty because we do falter all the time. And the Lord said, already accommodated. The Lord already restored Peter. He said, and when you come back, he hadn't denied him yet and already he's restored. So God's not stressed by your weaknesses. I'm here to tell you the righteous fall. Seven times, but they get up. 
So if you're a child of God, you have two positions, getting up, standing up, never laying down. We get up and keep getting up and keep moving on. When someone's trying to get up, don't knock them down, help them up. No matter how crippled they might be, we are, we are the one life giver in this world, the church of God, to bring life to people that are falling. But they've already fallen so many times. If we must forgive 70 times 7, our brethren, we can expect God to forgive us more than that. Come on now. But we've go, I've already done it two or three times, so you haven't reached 70 times 7 yet. Are you hearing me? He's a forgiving God, and we ought to be that forgiving too, and more that, that tolerant. It gets frustrating, and God will wear you down to change your attitude. Life had enough. You keep saying you're sorry, but you keep doing it over and over. It's, it's a whole different, different mindset. We have to change our minds and become like him. If you want to make, take charge of your life and take charge of your destiny, you've got to start patterning your life after him, not after Peter, not after Paul, not after John. They are your brethren, but your, your, your leader is Jesus. He's the one we copy. He's the one we follow. What did he say? We didn't say anything. Or well, what would he have done? We follow his pattern because we are his disciples. And that's the way we take charge of our lives by following Jesus. Now, Joseph was very clear in his destiny. He was so yielded to God that he had a good attitude as a slave and a good attitude as, as a criminal, even though he was un, unjustly inside that place. He didn't whine and complain and feel like, woe is me. And we get that place so quickly. Why me? Why is it over here? Get over yourself. You're not going to achieve anything with your whining, complaining. Get up and move on. And God will always make things well for you. When God said to, to Cain and Abel, he told them exactly, I want you to take care of the, the fields and you take care of the sheep. And when they bring me your first fruits, and when they bring the first fruits, he prefers the one with the lamb, which is unfair. God is not fair. He never has been. He never will be. Get it in your system. God is not fair. He's just. Fairness is we measure one to the other. Well, I did it for, for Pastor Mark. I've got to do it for this other one too. No. No, God's not fair. He's just. He measures by himself. He measures to himself, not to someone else. He finds Cain all miserable and frustrated. He says to him, why are you so downcast? Really? God, that's, you're going to go with that? You're going to ask him why? You, like you don't know? Why are you so down? Don't you know that if you do well, I'll bless you too? Because if God's blessing someone else, doesn't mean there's any less blessing for you. That's what we always think when God's favoring someone. Well, I'm not getting favored. That's not fair. He's going to favor you too. Just give it a moment. Give it a chance. I try and teach my children and grandchildren that we don't compare who got how many gifts at Christmas. We don't, well, he got five. Let's get five. No, we, we don't do that. We don't compare anything because there's, there's no way of comparing it because one may cost more than the other. You can't compare it. You get what's rightfully yours, and if you don't get it today, you'll get it tomorrow. God will make sure you get your portion. We're always satisfied. Ahab was wicked, and he had all these vineyards, and he wanted one little vineyard close to the house seemed to him. David was so different to Ahab. He said, I, your, your boundaries have fallen in lovely places for me. I'm so grateful for what I have. He didn't say, I wish I could have that. No, he was happy with what he had. He was grateful. You understand what I'm telling you? We always got to complain about something else. Instead of giving, start giving thanks for what we have. I teach my own children, don't tell me what you don't have. Tell me what you do have. Let's have a list of what you do have. Go through the whole, recite it, the whole thing, everything you can be glad about. And you'll be shocked. We have an old hymn saying, count your blessings and name them. One by one. And you'll soon find out what God has done. We're so quick to moan about the one thing bothering us today, but you have so much to be grateful for. 
So much to be grateful. God loves a grateful heart. So Joseph had a moment that was prepared for him and God preparing him until the time God was purging his character. So many things in our lives we do and go through and God's just building and working us for that one moment that's so important. So don't complain or whine about those moments or those difficulties because they're preparing you for great things that are eternal. These things are such momentary. The suffering is momentary. It's all just temporary. This, this all passes all too fast. Yea, and verily I send.